This is the Book of Mormon, Digging Deeper. I'm your host, Mark Swint. serve vastly different religions and cultures of the world, almost all the books of scripture used by those religions share certain areas of commonality. For example, almost all sacred ancient writings contain a version of the story of the Great Flood. Many books offer similar accounts of the creation of this earth and its inhabitants. Almost all have Adam and Eve figures as well as a war in heaven. They may adapt the names and particular details to more comfortably fit their ethnic or nationalistic identities, and certainly over time some stories take on a purely local setting, but the essence of the stories convey the same message. The books of scripture for the three great religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, share an even closer bond. The Torah, the Quran, and the Bible are products of a people known as Shemites, or descendants of Shem, the most blessed of Noah's three sons. Known as the great high priest, Shem's descendants are now known as Semites, and they include such great people as the Arabs, the Hebrews, Phoenicians, Syrians, Assyrians, and the Babylonians. It would stand to reason that if these people did indeed share a common ancestry, they would also share a related history. And so it is that the early patriarchs from Adam through Noah and on to Abraham appear in one form or another in all of their scriptures. Abraham, in particular, figures prominently in all three books, as it was through his sons Isaac and Ishmael that the Arab nations and the house of Israel evolved. Not only do the Torah, Quran, and Old Testament all recognize these figures, but so also do a vast majority of ancient documents, which have come to light in the last 150 years of archaeological exploration in the Middle East. We now have, for example, Enoch texts from Ethiopia, Greece, the Slavic regions, Syria, the Hebrews, and, most recently, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as our own Joseph Smith Enoch text, as found in Moses 6 and 7 in the Pearl of Great Price. While details vary, the underlying theme remains constant among them all. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that the Book of Mormon also contains references to these people, and the details it provides illuminate rather than confuse the already expansive body of Scripture extant in the world. What is surprising and unique about the Book of Mormon, however, is that it is the only book of Scripture that directly quotes passages from another book of Scripture. Within the pages of the Book of Mormon, we find 26 chapters of Isaiah, 3 chapters of Matthew, and two chapters of Malachi 
cited in their entirety. This citing of a more ancient scripture firmly and unequivocally ties the Book of Mormon to the people of the Old Testament and establishes a bond between the two civilizations. All too often, as we read, we are tempted to skip over these chapters because they're, quote, not really the Book of Mormon history, and after all, isn't that what we're studying? Those who do go ahead and read the Isaiah passages often do so for the sake of saying that they've read every word of the Book of Mormon. However, seldom do we lay open the Bible side by side with the Book of Mormon and actually do as the chapter heading directs and compare the two. This is unfortunate, for contrary to popular belief, the Isaiah, Malachi, and Matthew passages are not copied verbatim from one or another versions of the Bible. Joseph Smith did not skip over these passages, nor did he take the text from the Bible as an easy way around the difficult process of translating. Rather, he continued doing what he had been doing and translated every word from the golden plates as it came to him. As a result, though the passages are remarkably similar, they nevertheless show unique and sometimes crucial differences. In episode 4 of this series, a podcast entitled One Word, we discussed how the change of one single word significantly changed the message and revealed a great deal about the value of temples for the house of Israel. I have found studying these differences to be most educational and clarifying. In the case of Isaiah, they certainly make it much easier to understand. Let me give you a few examples. In Isaiah 50, verse 1, we read a somewhat pedantic verse. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In 2 Nephi, we read of Jacob teaching from this same Isaiah verse, only his is a little different. It says, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of thy mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? Or to which of my creditors have I sold you? The beginning of the biblical verse is confusing because it says, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? It sounds like the Lord put their mother away. The Book of Mormon verse leaves little doubt about the circumstance. It says, Have I put thee away? Have I cast thee off forever? Where is the bill of thy mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? You see, here it is very clear that the Lord is innocent in the matter. He challenges the Israelites by very literally saying, Look, it wasn't me. Did I put thee away? No. Did I cast thee off? No. Show me the bill of divorcement for your mother. You can't find one. Throughout the Isaiah scriptures in the Book of Mormon, if you will read them side by side, you will find that they always leave you with a much clearer and much more logical statement than those we read in the Bible. Here's another example, also in Isaiah 50. It says, He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine enemy? Let him come near me. Sounds a little bit challenging to me. But in Second Nephi, 
we read, And the Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me, and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. You see, this is why he says, let him come near me. That has left off the Bible verse completely. And if you'll indulge me, I want to show you one more example where the biblical verse makes no sense at all, but the Book of Mormon verse clarifies perfectly. In Isaiah 2, we read this, O house of Jacob, come ye, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. But in Second Nephi, it adds an important detail, it says, O house of Israel, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Yea, come, for ye have all gone astray, every one to his wicked ways. Therefore, O Lord, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. It is the addition of the last part, ye have all gone astray. That's why they were forsaken, whereas the biblical version makes it sound like they walk with the Lord, and therefore they forsook themselves, the house of Jacob. It just doesn't make sense. Whether or not you believe in the Book of Mormon, anyone who reads these Mormon verses of Isaiah would have to agree, would have to agree, that the Book of Mormon makes Isaiah sound a lot more understandable. Well, we don't have time to go through all the examples in the Book of Mormon, but if you would like to know more, I invite you to read my book, Compare Isaiah, Understanding Biblical Scriptures in the Book of Mormon. You can get it on Amazon or a Deseret Book or wherever LDS books are sold. So maybe we can agree that the Book of Mormon has a purer, less adulterated version of the Isaiah Scriptures. But that still doesn't answer why they are so prevalent throughout our book. To understand that, we need to understand the position Nephi was in. Nephi's mission had been arduous from the start. He, like his brothers, faced the complete disruption of his life as he had heretofore known it. However, unlike his more obstinate brothers Laman and Lemuel, he accepted the coming changes with faith and steadfastness. He had faith in his father and faith in his Lord. Yet, Sadly, during the 12 to 20 years after they left Jerusalem, Nephi faced an almost constant display of faithlessness and disenchantment from many of his people. Over and over again, his people had witnessed the mercy of the Lord each time they repented, and over and over again, they saw things go badly each time they turned away from righteousness and forgot the Lord. Nephi was frustrated that they could not seem to understand the connection between righteousness and prosperity, nor between wickedness and travail. He was in a very tough position. Lehi was getting old, and he had to step up and be the leader of the people, not just spiritually, but politically as well. Now, it seems that politicians always have about 50% support from the populace, which means that about 50% of the people did not want to hear what Nephi had to say. However, being, in their minds at least, good children of Israel, they did respect the old prophets, those who had died and gone into history. This was a common trait among the people, and it still is today. 
We have no trouble believing in old prophets. We just don't want to believe in a living prophet. We covered this at length in a previous podcast, so I'll leave it at that and move on. Nephi needed a way to make his prophetic words penetrate, and he knew that if he spoke them, many of the people would ignore them. But if Isaiah spoke them, that was a different matter. Nephi knew that if he could get his message out using Isaiah's words first, he could then expound upon them and get his message across. And this is exactly what he did. He says in 1 Nephi chapter 19, quote, But that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. I think here is the key to understanding why he and the later prophets, including Mormon at the end, decided to make the effort to include those Isaiah scriptures, as well as the other biblical scriptures, in the record that was left for us. And make no mistake, it was a great effort to include them. Nephi and the prophets who followed him all noted the great difficulty they faced as they struggled to adequately write their history. Listen to this from Moroni chapter 9, quote, And now, behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us Reformed Egyptian, being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. And if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew, but the Hebrew hath been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, ye would have had no imperfection in our record. Close quote. Limited space on the plates and difficulty in writing required that only the most important information should be written down. Nephi expressed this almost immediately in his record. He says, Wherefore I shall give a commandment unto my seed that they shall not occupy these plates with things which are not of worth unto the children of men. Mormon, likewise, in 3 Nephi states this, And now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach his people. Jacob and Moroni also expressed the difficulty with which they struggled to record the works of their people. It stands to reason, therefore, that no extraneous or superfluous words should ever occupy the pages of the Book of Mormon, which makes it all the more remarkable that, listen to this, Within the first 100 pages of the Book of Mormon, we have no less than 26 pages devoted to quoting Isaiah. It seems apparent to me that Mormon felt that the words of the ancient prophets would be of value to us today as well as to his people. If Nephi and the others did liken the scriptures unto ourselves, as they say, then it seems reasonable that we too in this generation would benefit from likening the scriptures to ourselves as well. As Mormon made his narrative, it must be remembered that no Nephite eyes would ever see the words he painstakingly engraved on the golden plates. All his statements, pleas, and admonitions were directed particularly and solely to us in these latter days. 
The direction he was given by the Lord was to assemble a record of his own fallen people with such detail and accounts as would show unto the people of much later generations how and why his people were destroyed, so that we might not fall under the same bondage and suffer the same fate. To that end, the Lord gave Mormon a grand vision of our day and showed unto him all our weaknesses and problems so that he might more wisely mold his record to our special needs. He writes, Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. Moroni continues this thought and closes with the following humble plea. Behold, I speak unto you as though I spake from the dead, for I know that ye shall have my words. Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. How somber it must have been for men like Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni to ponder the visions they saw of our day and attempt to engrave on metal plates fitting words of warning and caution that we might possibly avoid the very same things that brought down their people. All these things only reinforced the notion that nothing was going on to the plates save it had great value to the people of our own generations here in the latter days. This gives all the more reason to marvel that fully one quarter of the early pages of their record are devoted to the words of Isaiah. Now you may ask, why Isaiah? Well, many other prophets, Zenos, Zenoch, and Nahum, to name a few, are referenced by Book of Mormon authors. It is Isaiah who is first quoted verbatim in an entire chapter. In fact, Isaiah is the source of over 85% of the biblical scriptures in the Book of Mormon. To understand why this is so requires an examination of who the man Isaiah was, as well as an understanding of his mission. In citing Isaiah more than any other biblical prophet, the Book of Mormon is only following the example of the New Testament. Researchers and scholars who study such things have found that Isaiah is the most quoted biblical prophet in the scriptures. He is quoted more often than Paul, more often than Peter, more often than John the Revelator. Remarkably, he is even quoted more than Jesus. And in an account of Jesus' visit to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, we see an occasion where Jesus quotes the entire 54th chapter of Isaiah to the people and then expounds upon it and gives him the following endorsement and charge. Quote, and now behold, I say unto you that ye ought to search these things. Yea, a commandment I give unto you that ye search these things diligently. For great are the words of Isaiah. So you see, we are commanded to study Isaiah. What a powerful endorsement for sure. A close scrutiny of Isaiah's teachings show that his mission was far more reaching than most other prophets. Isaiah seems to have been a sort of Old Testament John the Baptist. That is, he acted as a herald for the coming Savior. The angelic messenger who proclaimed the Savior's birth 
seemed to be quoting Isaiah when he declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Likewise, when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith in September 1823, he quoted from the 11th chapter of Isaiah and proclaimed that the time was at hand for his words to be fulfilled. Isaiah had a very specific message, which became a recurring theme throughout his entire ministry. He constantly taught that God requires righteousness from his people, and unless they obey him, they will be smitten and scattered by their enemies and will be brought down as far as is necessary until they are humbled. The Lord will do this because righteousness is required for those who would stand in his presence at the last day. This part of his ministry was simple and straightforward. And inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. People often wonder why there are so many wars in the Book of Mormon. I've heard it explained to me that the account of the wars and all the various strategies and all of the various uh, conflicts and manners of fighting, all of them demonstrated that it was only when the people were righteous that they prevailed, and when they were wicked, they lost. That was the determining factor. So you see, Isaiah's message was the dare I say, the underlying theme of the Book of Mormon and was explaining the reason why the people of the Book of Mormon destroyed themselves. Well, let's go on. It must be recognized and constantly remembered by any student of the Book of Mormon that the prophets who made this record knew that their voices would, quote, whisper out of the dust. It is interesting that they use the metaphor of dust rather than saying, our voices ring out from the past, or our voices declare with the sound of trumpets through the ages. No such bold expression was used. Rather, they acknowledged that their people would be brought down in humility to the dust. Neither would their voices ring out loud and clear, but rather, from the dust they would whisper. One must have compassion for such men as these who knew that their mission to save their own people would ultimately fail, but who saw in the future another audience who might, through the sad accounts in the Book of Mormon, learn the lessons therein and save their own generation. As Latter-day possessors and caretakers of the Book of Mormon, we must constantly remind ourselves that there is nothing joyful about the Book of Mormon. It is a sad tale of a fallen people whose cycles of righteousness and wickedness ultimately led to their complete and utter destruction. Its people cry unto us, saying, Do not do as we have done. Learn from our mistakes and save yourselves. It is remarkable to note how closely the prophecies of Isaiah parallel the hopes that all the Nephite prophets held for their people. Well before Lehi left Jerusalem, the house of Israel had been split into two different kingdoms. The one we know as the Lost Ten Tribes is currently called the Kingdom of Israel and was lost to the common knowledge of man almost immediately. The other, called the Kingdom of Judah, was comprised of the tribe of Judah and a smattering of remnants from the other tribes, including Joseph, who remained in Jerusalem and the land of Judea. They were destined to be driven from their homes and scattered to the winds. Indeed, this is the reason Lehi fled with his family into the desert in the first place. As the various Book of Mormon prophets recorded their history, 
they recognized that the splitting of their family into Nephites and Lamanites was a similitude of the house of Israel. It only follows, then, that the words of Isaiah would have been powerful reminders of the fate and the responsibilities that awaited them. No other Old Testament prophet had so concisely spoken to their condition as had Isaiah. It is no wonder that he was their strongest link to their ancestral home and the larger family of Israel. As we come to understand this, we see more clearly why Isaiah's words are so abundantly provided throughout the Book of Mormon. I believe that if you will take another look, a closer look at the Isaiah scriptures in particular, but all the biblical scriptures in the Book of Mormon in general, if you will try Nephi's method of likening them to yourselves, you will find a great message in them, and that will be of great value to you. Remember, they are there at the expense of a hundred other things which could have filled the pages instead. There must be some value in them. I leave you with this advice that I gave to my son in the conversation that inspired my book. If you find a boring part of the Book of Mormon, stay on that part until you can figure out why Mormon thought it was so important to include in his record. I promise you, you will be blessed and enriched for doing so. I leave you my testimony that the Book of Mormon is true and authentic, and that it contains hidden treasures of knowledge for those who study and ponder rather than just read the words. The Holy Ghost will testify to you that it is true if you make a sincere effort to find out. I bear you my testimony that, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm Mark Swent. Thank you for listening.